0: Uh, Chris, I've started recording, so uh, uh, if you want to, are you ready to take this away? Uh, let me just make sure. I have some, some notes in case I get into the weeds and can't think of something to ask you. Perfect. And I want to make sure I have access to those because I'm, I'm working on a, a, off of one screen here. <laughs> All and, right. Well, uh, and,
1: and, and I should warn our affiliates, we may go long. <laughs>
0: Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever it is, wherever you are. I'm Christopher Moore, no thirds of the Reduced Shakespeare Company, and you're listening to this week's Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast, number 700, my podcast, damn it. So today, I, Christopher Moore, famous unknown author, We'll be taking over the Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast and talking to one of the creators of the Reduced Shakespeare Company, Austin Tishner, answering all of your listener questions as well as some I come up with and giving Austin time to self-promote. Nice. So, welcome today. Thank you, Chris, for having me. Oh, you're very welcome. It's very cold here in Illinois or wherever I am today. <laughs> um, Well, Here's one thing. One thing I love is that
1: we've been talking about doing this for months and we recorded this a few months ago, but we decided to release it today, May 11th, for our special 700th episode, because not only is it our 700th episode, your latest book, Shakespeare for Squirrels, drops tomorrow, May 12th. And that's such a wonderful synchronicity. I can't stand it.
0: It's it's pretty fantastic, and squirrels everywhere are are really excited about chirping in iambic pentameter. Um, But we want to find out about you, the man, the myth, the legend behind Reduce Shakespeare. This is something I brought up. I don't know when we were just chatting over lunch or some ridiculous waste of time that we were doing. um, That I don't know stuff about you, and I'm sure your listeners who who. Who hear your mellifluous, mellifluous voice every week um, want to know stuff about you. So I'm going to start by hitting you on your basic CV stuff. Where were you born? Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? You don't have to tell me any of this, or I encourage you to just make stuff up. So, <laughs> where were you born? Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? Um, what'd you want to be when you grow up? And how did you get into this horrible business, Austin? Oh Boy, that's a lot of great questions, Uh, and I'm flattered by the notion that you
1: think my listeners want to hear more about me, because every week, and I've been doing this now for 14 years, every week I think, God, aren't they sick of hearing my voice yet? Um, But apparently they're not, which is lovely. uh, and I'll and I'll correct one thing that you said. I'm not one of the original creators of the Reduced Shakespeare Company. That was a man named Daniel Singer back in 1981 who put together a, a merry band of Shakespearean thespians to perform at Renaissance fairs. That the that original five was originally down or whittled down to the original three: uh, uh, Jess Winfield and Adam Long, along with Daniel Singer. Those three guys created the short Hamlet, then the short Redu- uh, Romeo and Juliet, and then finally in 1987 created the complete works of William Shakespeare Abridged, which I so many people thank me for the complete works of William Shakespeare Abridged, which I, I is flattering, but I had nothing to do with its creation. I'm only in the filmed version of it that is on YouTube and what met most people have seen. So to get back to your question... I was born right there in the city where you live right now, San Francisco. I'm a fifth-generation San Franciscan. Um, uh, I grew up in the East Bay in, uh, in, in Oakland, in, in uh, rough, ragged Oakland, California. And when I say rough, ragged Oakland, I really mean the largely white, upper-middle-class suburb of Piedmont. That's what
0: <laughs> Piedmont's um, where the big houses are in Oakland.
1: The very big houses up on in the foothills before you get up to Montclair and um, and the hills above that. Um, we use, Piedmont High used to be famous for the bird callers that would appear on the Johnny Carson show and the David Letterman show. I don't think they appear on talk shows anymore. But um, uh, anyway, we had the Piedmont High bird calling contest. But we also. Uh, had a great arts program, and I was in high school in the seventies and so i every year we did a fall play, a winter sort of orchestral choral concert a uh, a, 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 a spring dance concert, a spring musical, but also a winter Gilbert and Sullivan. Our music teacher was a huge Gilbert & Sullivan fan and, and 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 also expert in it and was close to the Lamplighters um, Gilbert & Sullivan Company based in San Francisco, which is still in existence. So we used to rent their costumes and their scenery and do our own productions of Gilbert & Sullivan operettas. So I didn't experience Shakespeare in high school, but I experienced Gilbert & Sullivan, which was sort of equally weird. Uh, I didn't... Even experienced much Shakespeare in college, really, except for a Shakespeare and film course that I took at University of California, Berkeley. I was a history and drama double major, and we didn't we did some experimental stuff and some O'Neill and Chekhov, God help us, um, but uh, not much Shakespeare.
0: Um, I, I have a question about the Gilbert and Sullivan. The um, in some of the plays that you've written. I think the, the most recent that, that I've seen is the, uh, the long-lost Shakespeare play found in a, in a parking lot in, um, in Leicester, Le- where is it? Le- Leicester. <laughs> Leicester, um, uh, where you do a sort of a medicine show recitation, and I, I don't have a better way to, uh, to uh, refer to that other than, than it's a very rhythmic sort of list of stuff. And I always say that authors love to do at their readings. They love to read lists. And I I did a reading at Bea one year where there was four I think you know famous authors reading, and every one of them did um, a, a piece that had lists in it. And I, I I wonder if the Gilbert and Sullivan that you grew up with performing uh, had any influence. Does that sort of come up in the in the back of your mind the way hip-hop probably comes up in uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda's mind when he's writing something. Um, It
1: it absolutely does, and it's interesting that you point out the list aspect of it because if you were to to generalize about myself and Reed Martin, my partner in the Reduce Shakespeare Company, we're the co-artistic directors of the company, and we also write all of the shows since... Uh, The Complete History of America Abridged up to the newest one, Hamlet's Big Adventure, a prequel. Um, If you were to generalize about the way we write, I tend to write comic scenes, and he tends to write comic sketches that are lists. You know, comic lists of things. Um, Like the sketch in Long Lost Shakes where we talk about all the Disney movies that are based on Shakespeare plays. Um, That's an example of a sketch that he wrote. But the Pattern that you're talking about and i think my interest in and you know facility with shakespeare's language comes definitely from gilbert and sullivan my facility with that but also earlier than that i have to trace it back to um growing up as a kid when the movie of the music man came out and i loved right. that movie and i can i can still recite m- trouble and 76 trombones, and most of those things, most of those songs, and I played Harold Hill in high school, Uh, uh, and, and, but I also remember a lot of the old black and white um, Marx Brothers and Abbott and Costello movies that I would watch on Channel 20 or Channel 44 there in the Bay Area, maybe Channel 2, Um, and, you know, particularly the Abbott and Costello stuff, all that back and forth snappy patter of, of comic Uh, straight setups and comic punches um all of that sort of flows into and then and then my i don't know uh, awareness of shakespeare when i got into grad school my very first assignment in grad school is i got my um mfa in directing from boston university and our very first assignment was to reduce a shakespeare play to five minutes taking the essential story points uh, to how can you tell the story of that play in five minutes? What things do you, would you choose to emphasize? Um, and so it was a, that was the very first thing I did was reduce Shakespeare. And then I started doing children's theater when I started doing hour-long productions of Shakespeare. Um, then that was one of the reasons why I loved joining the RSC and getting to perform the complete works. And then... Finally, sort of returning to our Shakespeare roots for with Long Lost Shakes and Hamlet's big adventure because it's it's fun to put all those muscles to work again saying those lines.
0: I'll bet I I, I can imagine I have the same uh, experience in my writing with Green Eggs and Ham. Hmm. Um, whenever <laughs> I'll be in the middle of a scene that has absolutely nothing to do with that, and I'll be writing in the Green Eggs and Ham cadence. But <laughs> but and I and I have very very limited uh, exposure to to Gilbert and Sullivan, but I think there's three instances in my, in my body of work where I, I use the, the phrase, the, the very model of a modern major general in some form or another. It's, it's sort of, uh, I, I often lament that I don't know Shakespeare better because then I would affect those rhythmic speeches and patterns that, that, uh, that you, you learn through memorization and that, and, and that in, uh, they are they're imposed in your work later on they just they're like patterns i i, I as an actor I me mean, rather than talk about my dumb thing um as an actor i've been told again and again and again that it's the it is the iambic pentameter which is just miserable to write um that allows actors to be able to memorize those long speeches in shakespeare and and sort of uh, imposes the inflection um, is it, do you find that's the case?
1: Yeah, it's in some way, particularly if it's rhyming, because if you could remember the first rhyme, you can frequently remember the second one. Right. Um, but it, but um, uh, what's what's hard about the iambic pentameter is that very often Shakespeare or whoever will have to put the verb in a weird place to make the line scan right. you know, rhythmically, and that's sometimes really hard because um, the the sentence doesn't do what you want it to do, what you think it should do. But that's, to me, like the aspect of... Mike Whitmore, the director of the Folger Shakespeare Library, asked me why I like performing it, and I I had never thought of the, that question before, but to, it immediately came to me. as like, speaking Shakespeare is like playing an instrument. You know, you learn uh-huh. how to speak it in the way that you learn how to play whatever, uh, guitar or trumpet or whatever it is. Um, and it's a... It's a it's another language, and I was going to ask you since your book's coming out tomorrow, and as we've talked about, you and I are kind of some of the handful of t- part of a few of a tiny handful of people sort of writing this faux Shakespeare, faux spear right. uh, <laughs> language. And I love in your books, particularly the ones with pocket. Um, this sort of well, the sort of well. Language that sounds Shakespearean, but also as a comic author yourself, you're hugely aware of these sorts of comic rhythms of setup and punch, right? right?
0: Yeah, it's um, part of the fun of that is being able to make fun of the cadence and the the sort of uh, high-minded poeticism of, of Shakespearean language. Um, for me, a challenge is, is to make it sound Shakespeare-y, but make it much more accessible yeah. to a modern audience. It, it, it's, uh, you know, the really uh, strategically placed thee and thou, um, uh, the the ar- archaic, uh, archaically used British slang word that, that people say, oh yeah, I'm sure Shakespeare called people wankers. Um, <laughs> it's... Uh, it's so, sort of uh, – and that was my goal, and I still get people who who won't crack those books. I mean I've now written 17 novels. Three of them have this Shakespeare base, Fool, Serpent of Venison, now Shakespeare for Squirrels, and, and they just have this – and perhaps I, – I think – I always feel like Reduced is going out and inoculating people against Shakespeare phobia because they had some bad experience with it in junior high school or something – but uh, I have people that can't get past that, and and my stuff is so much more accessible than you know just opening a page in Macbeth and trying to figure out what Shakespeare's saying without a translation on the opposite page. I see the the difference is I think uh, one of the big differences is I am not a performer, although I I often say that comic timing is about hearing things, mm. um, and and when I write it I hear it so that. When I talk about my comic influences, and I think people are not surprised to hear, oh, Kurt Vonnegut and, and Mark Twain or, or Tom Robbins or Douglas Adams, they're, they're much more surprised to hear Eddie Murphy and Richard Pryor and George Carlin and Robin Williams. Um, but in fact, I learned comic timing from those stand-ups and listening to their albums or watching their specials much more than I did from reading Mark Twain or or Robert Benchley or or James Thurber or any of those comic authors. Um, So it it does uh, – there's an audible part of writing prose for me when it's going to be comic prose. That's awesome, and I never, I never
1: thought about that. That I, I too learned from uh, George Carlin and Richard Pryor, you know, and, and these other stand-ups to learn rhythm. In addition to well, Monty Python and 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 comic comedy duos from the forties,
0: thirties, and forties. So when you're writing reduced, you're basically taking um, or any of the reduced works. Um, you're taking sort of a. Do you take a structural uh note from from Shakespeare or is that unwise or do you just go for these are the most memorable and accessible things that everybody knows that you know sort of the prereq to carry me into this play or do you think okay somebody who's just uh fresh off of the street, having never encountered Shakespeare, will be able to enjoy it. Do you have a, a sense of your audience before you before you go to the page to, to write one of these things? A little bit. I mean, the thing we've discovered
1: is that the, at least amongst the people who dare to buy a ticket and come see us, those folks, even the ones who come in saying, I didn't know a thing about Shakespeare, come out of it realizing they know more Shakespeare than they think they know, Because Shakespeare is so much a part of our culture even today. You know, we use words and phrases that were either invented or popularized by him. Um, And we're careful to, you know, only satirize and spoof the big famous plays. You know, we're not going to do a deep dive into Cymbeline or Henry VIII because, you know, nobody would know what the hell we're talking about. Right, it's, You know, right. It's, why we, it's why we wrote Hamlet's Big Adventure, a prequel, not Coriolanus's Big Adventure, a prequel. Right. Uh, in addition to the fact that we just don't like the word anus. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, the structure of, a, of an RSC show typically is always the same. It's three idiots attempting to reduce something huge that's impossible to do in two hours, and they don't know it for... Shakespeare's long lost first play, we actually did a little bit think in five in a five-act structure. Um where and typically a Shakespeare play um takes its intermission sort of after act three and before act four, because you want your first act to be slightly longer than your second, or your second act to be slightly shorter than your first. Um so we did think about that and how in act three or four of Shakespeare's plays, particularly the ones where it sends its lovers into the woods. Those woods are typically in Act Three and Act Four, um, where you know all uh, inhibitions are thrown to the winds and people find young lovers find out who they truly are. Um so that's kind of the only time we took much structural um uh inspiration from Shakespeare. Um, although except Shakespeare was great and other playwrights have done this too, at, at just coming out and announcing what he's about to do, you know? You right. Know? It, 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 and I think you, you you do this too. You, you have this too, the, the idea of a prologue or a chorus right. coming right. in and talking about what's about to happen, and then you take that extra comic level of having the prologue, the narrative voice, the omniscient narrative voice interact with your protagonist.
0: <laughs> well, it, it's just... Um... It's something that I find some of the best lines in Shakespeare are given to the chorus. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, two families, uh, you know, alike in dignity or whatever. Oh, um, uh, for a muse of fire from Henry the Fifth, and and I just wanted to personify those. And I always see in in I think uh, two of my books, Shakespeare for Squirrels and uh, Serpent of Venice, the chorus appears as a as a character, a, a physical character. And I always see him played by Gilgood, um, in Gilgood in, in Prospero's book, which is the weirdest adaptation of, <laughs> of Shakespeare I've ever seen. Um, but uh, uh, anyway, back to your craft. Um, and, and for the reduced Shakespeare Company podcast listeners, y- you need to know that when Austin and I have lunch, it goes into the weeds of craft very quickly. <laughs> You know, we end up walking, it's like, what city are you living in as we're going to the car? But I, and I, I think for for my part, it's because uh, I don't get to talk to anybody about this. So for those of you who are here to listen to, to the, uh, the ebullient musings about reduced Shakespeare, I'm sorry if we've gone too far into the weeds for you, but this shit's interesting to me. Um <laughs> and me. anyway. When you okay so you you were doing um you did the 5 minute shakespeare play for your masters degree and then you, did you have a period away from the bard where you were working in with modern stuff and working in television and so forth before you came back
1: yeah i did when i one of my first well my first job out of while i was still in grad school was sort of as a, as a directing intern who I, I, who I was a directing intern for one year, and then the next year I came back to um, run the intern program and to coordinate uh, the season of six children's theater, children's shows, that the interns were perform when they weren't serving as, you know, uh, free labor on the main stage and playing small roles there. Um, and so, but... There was always a one-hour Shakespeare as part of those children's theater seasons, and it was great training too. Because if it was adults doing theater for children, and if you can keep an audience of five hundred, you know, five, six, seven-year-olds quiet and engaged for forty-five uh-huh. minutes, you can keep anybody involved and engaged. That it was great training. Um, um but yeah then I then I lived in New York City for a while and I uh, uh, was associated in, in the directors unit of a place called the Writers Theater uh which was on 46th Street I think and um it was just a place it was it was run or founded or supported by Tom Fontana who had created Homicide and Oz uh, you know a TV writer he had worked mm-hmm. on Saint Elsewhere too one of my favorite shows mm-hmm. um And so I was attached to its director's unit there, and we would work with living playwrights to do staged readings. We wouldn't do full productions, but we would um, do in-house readings and then staged readings for the public of of new plays. And I worked with a handful of playwrights who've gone on to do quite wonderful things. And I loved working on those new scripts, but I quickly found that I'm not a great director uh, uh, with new scripts dealing with living playwrights. Because I was discovering even then that I was too much of a writer myself. And I wanted, right. to, I wanted to, I didn't want to work on a script where I couldn't just jump in and make changes. Um, so then, yeah, so I was working with living playwrights and, then, uh, and staging, you know, you know cla- Jesus Christ, summer stocky things like Jesus Christ Superstar and... The foreigner and uh, uh, oh, I don't know what whatever else I directed at the time. Um, Where's Charlie? I directed Where's Charlie, the musical um, based on the play at, at the Lamplighters there in San Francisco in 1988. Um, uh, but yeah, finally joining the Reduce Shakespeare Company was really oh, and I played Claudius in college where I got so I was the epitome of evil in in Hamlet. Uh, <laughs> uh, but then, uh, but yeah, then joining the RSC in '92 was kind of my return to shakespeare and wh- there's what better way to return to shakespeare is there than to do all of his works in 90 minutes
0: wow um so, so in the in that interim time i mean you were doing you were living in los angeles i mean before you came to reduced you were living in los angeles doing tv is that correct or do i have the chronology wrong
1: oh right so yeah no you you do have the chronology wrong um so i was in new york city through the late 80s, moved up to New Hampshire in the late 80s, early 90s, lived there for a while. We moved to Chicago when um, when my wife started uh, at the Second City Training Center. We then stayed in Chicago because she said, wait, I I, I think they really like me. I think they're going to hire me. And they did. They hired her right out of the training program to start touring with Second City. And then they bumped her up to the ETC main stage where she was for, I don't know, three or four years. Um, and in the meantime, uh, we moved there in 91, and in the spring of 92, I got hired by the Reduced Shakespeare Company. Then in 96, when our first child was on the way, we decided to move to Los Angeles to look for more remunerative work out there. Uh, uh, and that's when, I started, that's when I started working in television, but mostly as an actor. Um, we didn't do any writing for television, although we did write... Um, We did write for uh, Disney Films. We wrote a – this was an interesting process. We were hired to write a treatment based on an idea they had, which was um, uh, 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 basically doing Hitchcock's Rear Window but for kids in an (laughs) animated form. And so we took to that idea. We loved that idea. We came up with a treatment called Foul Play, F-O-W-L, Foul Play, where it's a, an agoraphobic parakeet who looks out over a courtyard, not unlike Jimmy Stewart's in Rear Window, and sees nefarious goings-on amongst all the pets and animals living in and out of the apartments across the way. And then through a series, there's a bad cat who comes in, knocks the cage over, and suddenly this agoraphobic parakeet is released into the quote-unquote wild and has to get back to safety. Um, and that was our notion of the piece. And, and we kept saying, we kept saying, oh, be, they could, he, she could go here, she could go there. No, keep it small, keep it small. We want this to be intimate. Okay, all right. So we wrote our treatment and it went through all the stages, the contracted stages. And then the, <clears throat> the piece was taken over, not just from us, but from the development gals whose idea it was in the first place. So it was really more heartbreaking for them. It was taken over, I think, by the guys who had done The Emperor's New Groove, and -hmm. they were looking for their next project, so they took over ours, and it became two things. It became Chicken Little, (laughs) which came and went, that movie, Um, Mm -hmm. and which was funny because they kept telling us, no, keep it small, keep it small, keep it small. And they he, they took it over, and made Chicken Little, which is literally about the sky falling.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> and but they also took the agoraphobic idea, and we're working on a treatment called Scaredy Cat, and that never went anywhere. Uh, that never got made. But that that was our that was our one sort of writing for high, paid writing foray in Hollywood.
0: It's interesting. The uh, the secret life of pets one or two has I think an agoraphobic phobic purse dog, um, <laughs> so so it may have re- your idea may have resurfaced. Hi, I'm Kate Hirschner. I'm Austin's mother, and you are listening to the Reduced Shakespeare podcast. Now, Austin, please get your feet off the coffee table. So when did you come back to Chicago?
1: Right. So we came back to Chicago in 2011 um, when our kids were going into uh, high school and middle school um, because we just, there were, there were well, a couple of reasons. There were no good, there were no affordable schools that we could go to that were appropriate for our kids in L.A. Right. And D, my wife D, had wanted to leave L.A. almost the minute we got there, but um, but we had so many friends out there at that point, and the kids had their friends and blah, blah, blah. So there was no reason to leave. But once I went into middle and high school, we mo- wanted to move back to a city with great public schools. Right. The, the irony is um, we moved back here, and my first my son, then my daughter, got accepted into a really fancy boarding school back in New Hampshire, Phillips Exeter Academy, and uh, which they were enormously privileged to get to go to um, uh, and uh, also enormously privileged to get huge amounts of financial assistance because we certainly couldn't afford it. Um, but so now we were living in Chicago, not for the children, but for ourselves. And we really love it here because we still have a ton of friends here and we, we, D is a second citizen and I'm a second citizen by marriage and she's teaching improv at Northwestern and, and ha- now has a corporate job in addition to that. And I'm, and I have a kind of toe hole, sort of a foot dipped into the theater community here, and um, and and so we just have a lovely community that we're a part of. So it's uh, it's really we enjoy it here a lot.
0: It's uh, well, Chicago is a great the whole area, all the burbs and everything is it's just a great area. And I, I've often said that uh, if the weather wasn't what it was, <laughs> um, we would live there. But the weather being what it is, I enjoy visiting. Uh, <laughs> in in that seven minutes in the spring when it's really nice. Uh, <laughs> I found that you can always put
1: on more clothes when it's cold. There came a point in L.A. where we were out there for 15 years. There came a point at which I could not take any more clothes off without fear of being arrested.
0: Right, right. Well, Chicago in August. Um, yeah. Sort of that way. Um, I have a, a media escort that drives me when I'm in Phoenix and... and you know, she she's our age, you know, she's she's in her in her sixties. And um she she was telling me her husband was driving around and came back and said, They're just naked. All of these children on the street are just naked and he had been to the mall, evidently. <laughs> <laughs> but it was I mean, I was hearing this story on a hundred and ten degree day and I was like, Okay, I, I get it. I understand You're it. Sure. Why wouldn't you be? Um so, uh back to whatever it was we were talking about, um and just to remind your listeners, Shakespeare for Squirrels comes out tomorrow, available at bookstores nationwide and on various online retailers. Um it's the story of just <laughs> go for it. Go <laughs> for my itinerant it. jester pocket of dog snogging in the world of a Midsummer Night's Dream. I think that's a pretty good synopsis. That's that's all I really need. Um, Interestingly enough, I think about the the time I decided to do Shakespeare for Squirrels, you had um, shared with me that if you never saw another performance of a Midsummer Night's Dream, it would be too too soon or too many. Um, um, But you were still kind enough to... Share your thoughts on every single production that I I got a video of and would send to you. So, um, was it? What was it? Was it seeing so many bad productions of Midsummer, or or what was it? The, the the lack of complexity, or or what was it that that soured you on Midsummer?
1: It was seeing so many bad productions. Um, yeah. Because it's just, it, it, and, and that's not Shakespeare's fault. Uh, uh, But it did. I went, oh, I'm never going to see a good production again. And then suddenly in the last sort of 18 months, I've seen now two great productions, one at Chicago Shakespeare and one and and the Bridge Dream uh, that was uh, produced in London, um, which was hugely interactive and filmed for NT Live. And if anybody can go find an NT Live broadcast of the Bridge Dream, they must go do it. Both of those productions leaned into what I think are the strengths of that play, which is that the fairies are magical, and it's a world in which magic can happen, that the threat to the young lovers is really high, and the stakes are dangerous, and she genuinely will be killed by her father if she doesn't marry the person that he insists that she marries. Um, That the lovers be funny, in addition to being young and earnest, and that the mechanicals be earnest in addition to being funny. I mean, that's, I think, the, my biggest problem with productions of Shakespeare that I see, is that the comedies are insufficiently grounded and serious, and the, and the tragedies and the histories are insufficiently comic, and that's, I think, one of Shakespeare's great strengths, is that, is that combination of, of, of tones. In every play, there's a wonderful combination of tones. And that's what I love about your books, not just the... That's why I was so drawn to them from the minute I read the first one, which was Lamb. Um, and we can talk about later my favorite of your books, because it was Lamb, but, but Sacre Bleu is moving up. And then, of course, all your pocketbooks. But you, you have that similarly Shakespearean mix of tones that I love so much. It's, it's comic and it's both elevated wit and low fart wanking jokes. (laughs) Um, but moments of intense seriousness and, and earnest, important stakes. And I, I just love it.
0: Well, I think that's, that's something that I, um, I don't know if if I inherited that from Shakespeare. I I think trying to explain it is, uh, uh, I think it was E.B. White that said trying to analyze a joke is like dissecting a frog. You understand it, but it kills the frog. Um, but I, I I think that that is something that happens just from commitment to the material, and and that that's one of the reasons I think that you don't find many novelists writing comic novels i mean I'm, I think the short of that is it's hard, but the the longer of it is you have to commit you can't if you come out of an f a program where everything is about earnest uh the human heart in in conflict with itself, um you're not going to be able to to write funny stuff because you're going to keep trying to to ground it and which is not to say I, I think uh a timely reference right now is as we're recording this, the Academy Awards just happened last night and Parasite won for everything. And one of the things I was trying to explain to my wife, because she hadn't seen it, what, what to expect. And the thing about Parasite is it is very funny and it gets very dark, very quickly. And, and you have to sort of own the whole darkness of it as an, as the audience and and for us as, as Occidentals who aren't really used to that sort of thing, um, it, it, it's a bit of a shock. It's because we don't do that with our stories and Hollywood movies don't do that. They don't go from being ra- rather sort of farcical and, and funny to, to just dark and earnest very quickly. And, and, uh, and that sort of pervades that whole movie. And I, and I think that that may be what you're saying about, you know, *Midsummer Night's Dream*. Certainly, some of the Shakespeare comedies I don't even think are comedies. Uh, yeah. uh, Fortune of Venice* and and uh, sort of *Measure for Measure*. And, uh, *Measure for Measure* is like, are you seriously *Measure for Measure*? Yeah. Um, but that's that's another podcast to discuss with someone who knows Shakespeare better than I do. Um, <laughs> it's interesting what you talk about tone though in *Parasite* because uh, we
1: were talking we were at an Oscar viewing party and some people were saying, "Oh, I didn't like it because it t- it turned at the end and got turned into a slasher film." And I went. Well, a I don't think it turned into a slasher film, but also b um, I was laughing and tense, a tense on the edge of my seat from the jump at that movie because I went, wait, this can only go wrong. This could only, even if it's right. funny, can only go south. Um, so I was, I was on edge from the beginning.
0: I think yeah, and I think part of it is how far you're willing to go, right. and um, it's it's something that, that I talk about when uh when in the very rare instances where I teach a workshop or something like that i I talk about doing you know uh like killing a beloved character early in a book um because it lets the reader know, I will do this, yeah, you know it's not like watching you know series television from the nineteen eighties where you're like, you know what Sam and Diane are gonna make it through this episode. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas opposed to it was something when I was researching a uh, uh, fool, my first Shakespeare based book, I was watching a lot of British television. So I would just sort of pick up the idiom by uh, osmosis, yeah. you know, and uh, and I, I was just shocked. They would just kill off a main character in a series like the fourth episode of the third season. And it's like, well, they killed Danny. He's yeah. the main guy. I guess this has changed and I and but I think that that in the instance of of a piece of work that match that that uh maybe mixes comedy and and drama when an author does that or a playwright or a screenwriter does that it lets you know what they're willing to do it lets you know that no one's safe yeah. um and, and it's a it's an interesting piece of of craft I think to well, to show that you have that potential for darkness I'll have to go back and look at parasite and see if if that does that well you'll have you talked about commitment to the
1: material too and mm-hmm. and and i think that's a part of understanding well shakespeare but also anything you know some it, it, committing to the material means committing to everything that shakespeare gave you the the the, the dark stuff amidst the comedy and the comic stuff amidst, amidst the darkness i i've had an experience where a a director directs an incredibly powerful committed production of Othello and then directs a Shakespeare comedy but because it's a comedy he just thinks oh I don't have to pay attention to the to what's really going on here I can just put jokes upon jokes upon jokes and it's like no dude you still gotta you gotta direct it with just as much seriousness of purpose as you direct Othello
0: for instance. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. I, I, as you know, because we've discussed it, I, I watched the video that's available from the, the globe theater in London. Um, and they have these high res downloads of their, of their uh, performances and every play be it tragedy or comedy is very funny. Yeah. And, and it's, 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 they, I don't want to say pander, but I think in the spirit of what Shakespeare must've done in the time, in his days at the globe, um, they take minor characters, uh, for instance, Othello, Rodrigo in, uh, in Othello is hilarious in their Othello, but he's not on the page, you know? Um, so, so that, that sort of counterpoint, I think to, to pay back the audience is very interesting. Well, Austin, before I, I go too much farther into the weeds on, on craft, um, <laughs> we took a bunch of questions from, uh, the reduced Shakespeare followers on Twitter and from my followers and uh i kind of want to run these by you in in what would be uh a bit of a lightning round if you're willing to do that because this is you know the special 700th uh episode and and we need to give people more reduced shakespeare we need to to expand uh shakespeare reduced as it were
1: <laughs> that's right uh, we need to unabridge this i could give me hit me with the questions and i'll and i'll i can't promise lightning answers but go for it
0: has has public discourse improved or devolved since people stopped speaking in iambic pentameter? Okay, that's silly, but go ahead and answer that. <laughs>
1: it's silly. Um, it, uh, it's uh, only improved. It's only improved because we get shorter and t- we, we don't have to speak in 10-syllable sentences anymore. We right. can get right to the point.
0: Have you seen a shift in uh, Shakespeare's uh, trademark bodiness? Um in the post Me Too era, I'm I'm assuming this person's talking about performance. Um. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, uh, n-
1: well, no, I don't think so. I mean, I what I guess what I've seen is a different approach to the bodiness. I mean, the the obviously the bodiness is still there and has been there for 400 years. Um, but sometimes you can rush through it. I mean, what. The thing I think I'm seeing is sort of the playing with the gender of the performances that I've seen. Now, for instance, in this bridge dream that we talked about, they reversed the roles of of Titania and Oberon. So it's no longer Titania that gets hit with, in your phrase, the purple roofie flower. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm.
1: It's it's Oberon, and, and for, who is... Um, um, roofied and then forced to sleep with a an animal, you know. And I didn't. I never even occurred to me that this was uh, an offensive gesture, um, because it's just comic and ridiculous. How can it be offensive? It's not real. Um, but people take this stuff seriously. Is probably well they should. And so the fact that they switched the genders on it suddenly unburdened the moment, and uh, you know, and did it in its own little way smashed the patriarchy, at least of that play, while at the same time being bawdy and ridiculous. Um, I've Much Ado is one of my favorite Shakespeare comedies, and, and, but it also hinges on a public slut-shaming that is just horrible. And, a
0: hero, right? Yeah, Isn't it? a hero.
1: And when it's done from the point of view of, uh, da, of uh, Claudio and Don Pedro being outraged because their honor is besmirched by her dalliance that's also not true. It's fake gossip, fake news, right. somebody would say. Um, um, that's really horrible, and the fact that she takes him back is un- unpardonable. Um, so, uh, for, uh, uh, so any production of Much Ado About Nothing, for me, has to grapple with, the, with what to do about heroes taking back of Claudio, and and I have directed it where it's set in a high school, and Claudio is so young and so naive, and, it, and Hero is his first love, and so the loss of your first love is we've all been there. We all know what that feeling's like. And then to get it wrong, making it about him getting it wrong, uh, not about his honor, I think softens that moment. Um, Taming of the Shrew is another play that's has been problematic for a very long time, but I've always loved that play. Both my wife and I love that play. Um, And we know people who just can't get past its violence, but I think it's a love story between two people who really deserve each other. And I think even even shrews of either gender deserve a love story.
0: Well, it's it's interesting because Much Ado, while while it has that uh, the slut shaming, you've got Beatrice, who's such a strong, yeah, one of the best female characters in Shakespeare, for for my money. Um, yep. and 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 that that's a a dichotomy uh, that you have to face across all of Shakespeare's. We have so many of them, you know, not even to enumerate them. Have some ownership. Of women and 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 the subjugation of women. I mean, I I can't think of one that doesn't have that. If there's you know dominant female characters in it, you know from from Othello to uh, to to the the daughters in in Merchant to King Lear to you know mm-hmm. to Midsummer. You know where where uh you know she'll be killed if she doesn't marry the right guy. Yeah. You know and that's the mo- and that's the most lighthearted comedy of of Shakespeare. Yet you have these incredible female characters uh, uh, beatrice and rosalind and and uh um i think there's another rosalind in uh in love's labour lost that's that's terrific uh it, it's a, it's an interesting I, I wonder you wonder how much of it is just the time in which they were written and and what Shakespeare would be writing now? What would he be doing with with those female characters now? Well, think? right, and and what would he be doing with his female actors and knowing he could have actual females
1: playing them? Um, I think there'd be a lot more, a lot more, um, you know, a lot more strong women characters in his plays. I also love the fact that, and I'm not sure this is related to me too because it's been going on for decades, that women are just saying, you know, screw it, I'm going to play Hamlet. Or I'm going yeah. to play Caesar, or I'm going to play Hal, or you know, or, or Henry V, you know, and it really, that's the thing, it's, Shakespeare is so theatrical, he was not realistic, he was theatrical, and people put on a costume and now I'm this, I love that transformative quality about theater generally and, and Shakespeare specifically.
0: Uh, people still read and enjoy Shakespeare because his stories have universal themes. Are there any that you think uh, are a reach for modern audiences, and what makes them so?
1: Um, that's a really good question too. I don't find I don't think the plays as as whole things are a reach, but I do think that a lot of the uh, rep, uh, pop culture references and cultural allusions in those plays are way out of our reach. Shakespeare's making right. jokes and references to things that our modern audience has no idea what he's talking about. For instance, I I when I directed Much Ado Last, it was at Pacific University in Oregon and I assigned the play to my classes to read and then come see my adaptation and we compare and contrast. And I and I realized quite quickly that there's a reason Much Ado is typically not assigned to high school or college classes, because it is so filled with uh, pop culture references and, and classical allusions that we just don't know what they are. So you either need to change them or cut them, and so usually what I'll do is, is cut them, because they're not germane to the, the main par- aspects of the story. Shakespeare's just uh, throwing in nuggets for his audience because he knows they'll get them.
0: That's interesting because we, we hear again and again that Shakespeare's audience was, you know, they they were the groundlings. They were the street people of London who could put together a penny to come in. Um, and that sort of explains the bodiness and, and even the music of the language. Um, but do you think that his audience was getting all of those references or was that for the royals? He was writing the the, you know... Uh, who were sitting up in the gallery, <laughs> or he was doing special—he uh, was doing special uh, performances for.
1: I think I think it's a mixture. I mean, because I, I think his audience was all of London. I mean, it was the theater was the great leveling ground. Theater was, as Mike Whitmore at the Folger says, theater was the internet of the day. <laughs> right. It's, it's where people came, and even if some of them couldn't read or write, and that's the thing that we're learning more about too—is that many people could read without being able to write, and Shakespeare refers to, in several of his plays, to the great Roman actor by name. And then, as if, his audience will know who that great actor is. And so, clearly, they must have, or he wouldn't have said it.
0: Right. I marvel at that. Well, and uh, that's
1: how he made his money, too. He, didn't make, he only made his money when they sold tickets. And you only right. sold tickets to things that people wanted
0: to see, or had heard good things about. Uh, somebody asked, is there a modern equivalent to Shakespeare now?
1: Ooh, that's really
0: interesting. Um, ask me again in 400 years. Right. Do, do any themes in Shakespeare come to mind? Um, this seems like a real softball, actually, uh-huh. um, on how they correspond with what's going on in current events.
1: Um, yeah, I, and I'm I, I'm trying to think of specific ones, but... Uh, I mean, the the famous phrase, and it's uh, it's almost meaningless to me, is that Shakespeare teaches us what it means to be human, which is mm-hmm. so well. Everything you you get up in the morning, and you, you everything you do teaches what you means to be human. I, I that uh, that doesn't help me in understanding Shakespeare, you know, or or, or his greatness. I mean, I think what uh, Shakespearean themes are about power. They're about men and women. They're about children and parents. Um, they're about uh, navigating a, a sometimes unjust world, both comically and sometimes tragically. Uh, and they are very theatrical um uh, th- I think that's the big thing I keep coming back to. I mean all of his stuff is so universal we keep doing his plays four hundred years later right and 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 the fact that they are theatrical they they're not for instance they're not Chekhov plays written in a drawing room you know right or 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 which uh, even in modern dress feels sort of period sometimes. Right. Um, or they are not any of the 20th century realistic plays going back to Tony Kushner you know angels in america will always be a period piece nothing wrong with that but right. um but it too is incredibly uh, theatrical so i guess i can I, I guess I, I guess i answered the question with the themes of you know relationships right. yeah right.
0: Yeah, it's 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 interesting. I I I immediately sort of defaulted to all the mad kings, um, and, and there isn't really a, a great uh, probably who who's the best megalomaniac in Shakespeare? Lady Macbeth? Uh, yes, yes, Corian probably. Venus's
1: mom? <laughs> Cleopatra? Uh, oh yeah, 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 yeah. Margaret in the Henry VI plays. I mean, her journey from captured war bride to Queen and badass, that's an incredible journey, right, right there, right. Um, I saw one, I see one question is it, do you still see memorizing Shakespeare in high school as relevant? Um, and I do actually, um, uh, for a couple of reasons there I, I think memorizing anything is just a great skill to have it, it's a, it should be a tool in your box, no matter what you do. You know, you should have the ability to memorize something, then, or or stand up on your feet and uh, speak extempore uh, uh, in front of a group of people. But I know so many people from my high school. The first thing they had to learn was the the prologue in Middle English to the Canterbury Tales, Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. And I never took that class, so I never needed to do it. But so many different generations of people from in all walks of life. Um, who went to my high school and took that class can recite the opening to the Canterbury Tales in the Middle English with the Middle English pronunciation. And there's something sort of wonderful about that because it leads you into other areas. You know, the ability to study sort of ancient language or older archaic language maybe makes you comfortable with Latin, with which makes you comfortable with many languages, or makes you comfortable with a career in the law or becoming a writer of comic novels or, or a dopey playwright, you know, because you have this facility with language, even if it's just something that you were forced to do in high school. That question about memorization from what was from I Pedal Tahoe on, on the Twitter. Um, and there's this other question from Hendrix uh Glenn Hendrix, who is at Hendrix Glenn on Twitter, he asked, What does Austin think Shakespeare did with his best bed? And, <laughs> and that's a reference to one of the few things we know about Shakespeare was what we learned from his will. And in his will, he famously left his wife, um uh the former Mary Arden, um his their second his second best bed, <laughs> which always Makes everybody wonder, including Glenn, what did Shakespeare do with his best bed? My guess is that um, because I am like Shakespeare in so many ways, Chris, you know this. <laughs> Of course. Uh, uh, I, too, am am an actor who has become a playwright, who makes his living when they sell a lot of tickets, who's, uh, I've done fairly well in real estate because I bought a house in LA and sold it for six times what we paid for it, which is why we were able to live in in the burbs of of Chicago. Um, uh, uh, And my wife and I, we sleep in our second best bed. Our best bed is in the guest room. Because it's smaller, and it's we, we wanted a bigger bed because there's more room for cats. But uh, uh, so, this, <laughs> so the second best bed is is I think in Shakespeare's day was probably the marital bed. This is my guess, and and the best bed was probably part of the um, uh, under the under the heading of uh, ordinary chattels and possessions, which is probably where all of his books went, probably to his daughter. Uh, And Susanna and her husband, John Hall, who they moved in, they took over ownership of New Place, um, their house. So that's what I think. That's a really unreduced, unabridged answer to uh, Glenn's question.
0: Well, that's a a, a perfect way, I think, to wrap up this this unreduced podcast. I I will let you transition seamlessly into the announcements that you make at the end of these. Thank you for letting me be in charge. I think we've uh illustrated the uh the dangers of unskilled labor today in uh in this podcast. And I, uh, you
1: know what uh, we both we both have great faces for podcasts and so I <laughs> think it's a good thing.
0: That's not true. You're, you're a very handsome man. Oh, <laughs> now
1: you're just flirting with me. It really is time I, to get I, I
0: Well, you're an actor. I know that you can take it.
1: That's it for this week's epic, unreduced 700th episode of the Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast. Christopher Moore's new novel, Shakespeare for Squirrels, comes out tomorrow, May 12th, 2020. But of course, sadly, his book tour and personal appearances have all been canceled for the near future. So you can order the book now at your local independent bookshop or via the usual online conglomerates. And this Wednesday night, May 13th, Chris will be talking about Shakespeare for Squirrels online with novelist Jenny Lawson in a virtual Virtual appearance sponsored by Nowhere Bookshop. The cost is $32, and that ticket price includes a signed copy of Shakespeare for Squirrels. So go to Eventbrite.com and search for Christopher Moore or Shakespeare for Squirrels for more information. Then send us your favorite fairies' backstory via email to feedback at You can also find us and interact with other fans on our dedicated podcast page on Facebook at RSE Podcast, on Instagram at Reduced Shakespeare Company or on my preferred platform on Twitter at Reduced. You can also follow me on Twitter at Austin Titchener and you should absolutely follow Christopher Moore on Twitter at The Author Guy. Thanks, as always, to King of the Fairies' Matthew Croak, web services by Ginger Power Limited, music by John Weber and GarageBand. Our random fan shout-out this week goes to Mariah Jurist. No reason, it's just random. Since yesterday was Mother's Day here in the States, special thanks to my mom, Kay Titchener. She died 10 years ago this month, so it is always a treat to hear her voice again. And finally, thanks very much to you for listening. Please stay safe and stay home. I'm Austin Titchener, 721 ths of the Reduced Shakespeare Company.
0: Thank you for having me. Thank you for uh, letting me be part of this special 700th uh, edition of Reduced Shakespeare Podcast. And uh, I will talk to you again.
1: Yes, you will. It sounds like a threat, but it's a promise. This podcast is a production of the Reduce Shakespeare Company, reducing expectations since nineteen eighty one. Go to reduce for performance dates, actor bios, email newsletters, and so much less. So much S- less. S- so much S- less.